America seems like a very, very crazy place. It seems like the Wild West. They've got Trump, they've got riots, they've got protests, they've got AOC, they've got Space Force. How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense if we don't even live there? Well, today we are talking to Satya Marak, who's been living there for the better part of the year. He's been working for the Reason Foundation as a policy analyst. Satya, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. So for people who don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and and uh, what got you into politics? Yeah, sure. So I was born in India and I moved to Australia when I was 14. Um, you know, around the dinner table, you know, I was all, it was always our conversations would be about politics, about the stuff that's going on in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up in university and my politics started leaving center, right? I got to see... Kevin Rudd's, you know, building the education revolution, you know, spending bonanza. And I got to see the complete waste of money that happened as a result. You know, kids were given free laptops. They jailbroke the laptops and used them to access pornography and play Counter-Strike. You know, our school had this massive fence built around it, coincidentally around the same time I got the money. And that fence was entirely pointless. It just stopped us from getting free pizza at lunch. I realized, you know, top-down government solutions are wasteful and they don't get stuff done. You know, if money is going to be spent, it should be spent uh, based on something objective and not based on the incentives that politicians operate under. So uh, I started leaning into, you know, I read a bit of Milton Friedman. I read a little bit of you know, Adam Smith and Frederick Hayek and all that. And I started leaning into the libertarian side and I got involved in that movement finally um, in Australia. I, once I finished university, once I finished law school, I got bored of, I guess, you know, not bored so much, but, you know, I, I, I worked at a law firm for a while and, you know, it was interesting enough work, but then the opportunity to work in the policy space really interested me. So I interned with the Taxpayers Alliance, you know, we're a public advocacy group standing up for, I mean, we were, you know, standing up for taxpayers, small businesses and so on. Uh, and I got to do some great research and eventually I moved up to director. I uh, got to do a lot of writing for Daily Telegraph and The Spectator and even got a few pieces in the Australian Financial Review. Um, did a little bit of TV as well when I could. And finally, I thought next big step, you know, come to the uh, ultimate playground for politics and world affairs, which is Washington, D.C. Been here since the start of this year. Um, haven't looked back so far. But yeah, always new adventure. <laughs> So you weren't a fan. You did. You didn't uh, buy into the Kevin O Seven hype. Well, I mean, at the time, I, I didn't. I was always a bit of a contrarian. You know, whatever is really popular that all the kids are into. As a kid, I, I would always be skeptical. Uh, but I remember the Kevin O Seven thing happening, and I was always a bit skeptical for that reason. It seemed a little bit cultish. You know, I was fourteen, so what did I know about cults, right? Um, but then actually seeing what happened afterward, and seeing the same people who were wearing those t-shirts proudly, throw them in the bin, basically, and never mention that man's name again after things ended as badly <laughs> as they did, was, uh, you know, it was quite vindicating, I might say. So you're now in the United States. Uh, what is uh, Trump's America like? Your Australian experience of Trump's America? Look, uh, look, Trump's America, I mean, that's the thing, right? It isn't really Trump's America. You know, you, I mean, what I would tell anyone is don't believe whatever the media is telling you. And that, you know, whether it's a left-wing media, or right-wing media, it's all super polarized these days. They each have a narrative that they're trying to sell you and they will pick and choose facts that suit that narrative. 
Um, America is a very diverse country. Uh, it is it is a country that can be quite polarized, that can have sort of inter-tribal conflicts like any other country, but more so. But a vast majority of Americans are lovely people who are middle of the road and they see the good and the bad on both sides and they just want sensible leadership uh, and they're willing to vote for, I mean, I would say they're probably willing to vote for whoever they think is closer to that ideal uh, that they can see. Uh, you know, the whole protest vote thing, it is a huge thing for sure. But most people in this country are normal, good people, and they don't believe in punching someone in the face because they disagree with them. What has your experience been like with the protests? Are they like we see on TV? Or is, is it just, you know, are they just selecting a minority of violent people to show on TV just for sensationalism? What's, what's it been like over there? Look, um, one of the problems when a protest turns violent, right, is that you can have a completely nonviolent protest where literally 99% of the people who turn up are nonviolent and are good natured. It can be peaceful throughout the entire day. And then if it gets violent at the very end, you know, people start, like what I saw personally, suddenly someone starts throwing bricks at the cops or uh, if suddenly people start breaking the buildings and there's some looting happening, there's stuff being set on fire. Even if it's a very small minority of people doing that, which is true, it is genuinely a small minority of you know, nefarious actors, some of whom I don't even think are protesting. They're probably out of a job and they're probably looting because, you know, guess what? Uh, they don't have anything going for them in life. Like that Judas Priest song, Breaking the Law. I was listening to that today. Um, and when, it, when that happens, it almost doesn't matter, right? Like public perception is going to be based on the bad apples. The non-violent majority become, in the eyes of many people, irrelevant. Which is why I think the important thing to remember is you can condemn the riots, but also understand the protests themselves do have a point. This is a country that terribly needs police reform. Uh, it needs some institutional integrity in many of these departments where there has been instances of brutality and so on. I mean, in Australia knows well, look at what's happening in Victoria, the guy being stomped in the head. And what I would say to people who look at the rioting that happens and say, oh, these people need to be shut down is, look, they have, a, maybe not the rioters, but the protesters have a point. Let's find sensible solutions that speak to what the common man uh, knows. Actually, that's a good point you brought up. What What's the American perception? Like, Is it big news that there was this Australian History X moment where a cop kicked the back of someone's head? Or is it just like Australian news is not really on the agenda? Australian news doesn't really catch on, but I will say this. Um, that video footage of, I think it was the pregnant lady yep. being arrested because she made a Facebook post, yep. that did catch on. People here mm. did watch that. Because to an American, that's shocking. You know, you have the First Amendment here protecting your free speech. Australia doesn't have that. So mm. Americans are like, is that like the Stasi? Like, this is some Soviet <laughs> bullshit. Um, and I have to agree with them. It should have no place in a civilized society like Australia is meant to be. Um, what's happening in Victoria is a complete disgrace. And anyone I've linked the videos to, you know, of the guy being stomped in the head, of that dude whose house pretty much got broken into by the cops and they arrested mm. him. He was just demanding a warrant from what I saw. Um, yeah, people see that stuff and think, you know, thank God I live in the USA. Yeah. And I remember saying that. Yeah, for sure. So tell us about uh, the work that you've been doing over there. Who are you working for and uh, what type of work have you been doing? So I work for Reason Foundation, uh, which is, you know, one of the big uh, libertarian-leaning think tanks over here. 
Um, and uh, my team focuses on school finance. So it's sort of the less politically contentious area of finance policy. A lot of the people who agree with us are often Democrats or left-leaning people because you know who wouldn't want better public schools? You know, the idea is how do we spend the money that's already in the system better? Uh, you know, we're sort of agnostic on more funding. You know, we don't say, we don't want more funding. We don't say that. Uh, but we say whatever money is in the system, how much ever that might be, needs to be spent efficiently. The money should go to the students in need. If a child is in poverty or living in an impoverished area, there should be proportionately more funding going to them because they cost more to educate. Uh, and you shouldn't have the scenario where you have really rich areas with high property values and they're able to just use their own local property taxes you know to sort of have quasi private schools you know which are extremely well funded meanwhile literally just a few streets down you have an inner city neighborhood where the schools are underfunded and aren't doing very well and uh you know we sort of focus around those sorts of issues um we basically want equity we want to ensure that kids are able to choose the public school of their choice. They shouldn't be constrained by their zip code. Uh, you know, those, those sorts of issues. So it's very rewarding. Uh, and every state in this country has a different education system. So it's been, it's been pretty good to work on that sort of stuff. What, where do you see most of the improvement happening? What's the biggest problem at the moment in the education system, do you think? So America, basically, the USA, they spend something like 15000 plus dollars every year of each child they educate. Mm. And a country like Finland or, or Singapore, which are ranked at the top of the world, they spend like $3,000, $4,000 less for every child. And yet teachers get paid a lot more in a place like Finland. Um, and yet in American schools, often the classrooms are dilapidated. Teachers have to sometimes bring their own materials in. So, you know, there's a, you know, trying to get down to the bottom of why this crazy disparity exists, you know, there are a number of different reasons. It's a complicated problem, but you see things like administrative bloat, you know, the creation of a lot more positions than they need to be, which harms individual workers, right? Because their salaries, you know, don't get pushed as high as they otherwise could. I think I was looking at the comparison between a growth in, growth in American teacher salaries and the growth in real spending per student. And like teacher salaries are barely grown. So, you know, when we sit here and we say all of the, the teachers unions, what are they complaining about? They always want more money. They have a point. Like teachers in this country don't get paid very well. I'd like to see them get paid more, to be honest with you. Um, so, you know, there are issues like that. Uh, other issues I mentioned, you know, property values, local property values being a big factor in terms of how much funding some school districts get. Uh, calibrating this, these, I mean, another issue is, you know, giving schools and giving school districts the flexibility to be able to spend their own money well. Because what happens is sometimes you have state government and federal government saying, hey, we're giving you this money, but you can only spend it on this program. And the school might be like, well, that summer school program you want us to spend the money on, not many of our kids really use that program. Um, we'd rather give our teachers a raise. We'd rather build a swimming pool because we have some athletes who need that. Uh, so it's really about unlocking those sorts of restrictions to create you know, more local control at the school level. And since you've been at Reason, have you met Drew Carey yet? Isn't he on the board of directors or does he come I in and give so. you a scenario? I look, I haven't met him. I mean, look, America's a huge country. Um, like, I think he's in a different city. I think he's in Cleveland. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm mainly based in Washington, D.C. But, uh, you know, I've had a chance to meet some great people. I got to meet Nick Gillespie, 
um, the uh-huh. brand. So yeah, it's, it's been good. And so what is going on with Trump and sleepy Joe Biden? Uh, sorry, I shouldn't bias your, your answers. What's been going on with the elections? What's it like over there? Well, you know, for a long time, it, you know, everyone was insisting that Trump simply had no chance, has no chance of getting reelected, you know, and then COVID happened and, you know, people were apparently blaming him for his handling of the pandemic. And he made a, he made a, you know, few very costly mistakes early on. You know, he downplayed the extent of the problem. And when he finally acted, it was almost too late, you know. Um, but a lot of these issues, even in Australia, right, they're at the state level. Different state governors have handled these problems differently. And also keep in mind, like, if you're in a really small state that doesn't see that many visitors, that also impacts your risk. So, you know, if you're in a New York or a Washington, for example, and you got hit very early on, you are going to have an inevitably tough problem dealing with that more so than many other states. But I think now, after that sort of simmered down a bit, you know, the, the lead is being narrowed. And, you know, this polarization that's happening in the country is, is genuinely a, a big issue. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, he drove through rural Pennsylvania and he saw Trump signs everywhere, more so than what he saw in 2016. So by the same token that you will probably have a much higher turnout of blue voters than you did last time, you also, I think, in my approximation, probably have a huge turnout of red voters too. And the real, it's anyone's game at this point, but I think the real kicker will be the swing states. Uh, the question is, um, you know, are, are are people motivated enough to not actually vote? In Australia, we have compulsory voting. You don't have that here. So it's anyone's game at the moment, but let's see what happens. And the mail-in voting is also going to be a massive wild card. They say that it'll favor the Democrats. Um, we don't know that for sure, but I would I would think that at the moment, it probably would uh, tend to go in their favor most of the other teams. We'll find out. Yeah, maybe someone will mail in some anthrax. Not the uh, <laughs> not the drug, just the terrible uh, '80s band. Um, a great band. What are you about? <laughs> yeah, well, it's like a guilty pleasure band, right? Uh, what's uh, uh, do you think the Libertarian Party have a chance at kind of like shifting the Overton window? Do you think they'll get more than two percent of the vote this time? Um, I think they look. I can't say whether they'll get more than two percent. I think Gary Johnson did a very good job. You know, despite the occasional gaffe, uh, he did a pretty good job if you consider all things. Uh, I mean, uh, I really like George Roganson. I think that she really has a good middle of the road appeal. You know, the libertarians themselves, we tend to be a smaller group, but they're so divided, especially in this country. You know, there's left-leaning libertarians and right-leaning libertarians, and they argue over all sorts of issues that aren't, and that are sometimes tangentially connected to liberty. But I like Joe because she's able to manage those differences as well as she as anyone can you know she's she's a strong speaker you know i mean being a woman helps as well right because you know people want to see more female representation uh i guess they weren't particularly happy with hillary four years ago but you know i think there is a genuine uh drive in that direction amongst ordinary people um so yeah i think they have another shot to see i don't know if she'll do as well as gary did uh, and I do think there are a number of people out there who are considering voting libertarian, but because they have some loyalty to either Dems or Republicans, they might feel that if they don't vote for a major party, they're giving their vote away to the other side. And they shouldn't think that way. You know, if we have this issue of the two-party system where you're not perfectly happy with either choice, the logical thing to do, in my opinion, is to pick a third-party candidate 
it, you know, they won't get elected, but you'll send a signal into the ether saying we're not happy with the two-party system. And I think we need to ideally see more of that in every country. So they don't have preferential voting system over there, do they? It's just you vote for who you vote for and that's it. Yes. And I think the preferential voting system that Australia has is actually a really good thing. It allows those minor parties to at least get one or two people elected into the upper house, maybe. Um, and, you know, I mean, look at how much, you know, policy debate influence a party like the Liberal Democrats have had in Australia. You know, despite only having a few people in office, they've done an amazing job. Uh, and that would only work in the Australian system. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so in the first or second year of Trump's uh, presidency, he was in North Korea talking to the president and it made news here. It wasn't huge news. It was just kind of reluctant news. But at the moment, there's basically no news in Australia of what's going on with Israel and the UAE. So what's going on? What can you tell us about what's going on there? I mean, I'm genuinely pleasantly Surprised, and I, I give full credit to the Trump administration on this much because I wasn't expecting it. Um, what they've managed to do in terms of facilitating the normalization of relations between the Gulf states and Israel is commendable. They've done a good job there. They're also finally finalizing an, ex an exit plan from, from Afghanistan after that war is basically, I mean, in my opinion, that war is not worked out. The Taliban, even as we speak, control far more territory than the Afghan government does. But it's time somebody ended it. And if it's this administration, then good. Um, and what's happening right now is it's a combination of two things. So firstly, obviously, Trump administration has done a good job in terms of bringing together people who are formerly at loggerheads, being Israel and countries like the UAE and Bahrain. But on the other hand, there's also a matter of circumstance, right, which is Iran. Um, at the moment, there is that war going on in Yemen, and Iran has been accused of helping fund and arm the Houthis or Ansarullah. And meanwhile, the Saudi-UAE coalition has been supporting the other side. And, you know, there's been a, an escalation of these sorts of tensions for the last few years. And what we see more and more from these Gulf states is that their bigger priority is not what's going on in Israel or Palestine. Uh, their biggest priority is looking out for their own interests. And right now they see that as opposing Iran. And, you know, as we say, your enemy's enemy is your friend. So even before this deal was signed, people need to remember these governments were talking to each other through closed channels that weren't public. Uh, we know the Saudi government has some dealings with the Israeli government behind the scenes. So at least the intelligence agencies have dealings. Um, so there was that. But nonetheless, you know, good on the Trump administration for facilitating the process. Uh, you know, we can now travel directly to Israel via Dubai or via uh, Abu Dhabi, which I think is a big plus for Australian travelers. I went to Israel like late 2018, early 2019, and, and I was stuck on a plane for like 30 hours in transit. You know, I had to go from like Sydney to out to Dubai to Paris, layover in Paris, then to Tel Aviv. That, that makes no sense. So, you know. Oh, no, you had to lay over in Paris. Oh, poor thing. <laughs> look, at the airport, I need to tell you, the oh, airport okay. is like a labyrinth. It's like, you know, Theseus and Minotaur, but there's no Minotaur. Yeah. yeah. I read a stat the other day that said Trump's 
uh, broken a 48-year streak of presidents going into war. If nothing else, I think he definitely deserves credit for that. So do you actually see him bringing the troops home in Afghanistan? Like he started, but do you think that's just kind of like an election thing? Look, I mean, I don't want to say 100%. Look, I think he will. Um, I don't want to guarantee that he will because no one can do that. Uh, and I would say that, look, it was a bit disappointing when he said that he would pull the troops out of northern Syria, but he's relocated them elsewhere in Syria. So some would argue there's some precedent there, uh, but I am hopeful. You know, there's no reason or need, I think, for American soldiers to still be in Afghanistan. Um, it's time that this conflict was finally ended and people are brought home. To finish up, because we have to talk about it because it's 2020. What's COVID looking like there and uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, uh, you know, I think the rest of the world sort of loves to shit on the USA because of the high number of COVID cases. But the important thing to remember is that this is a country whose population rivals the entire European Union. You know, so we're talking a massive scale and we're talking about 50 states where each state has its own response and its own outbreak level. You know, at the same time that there's a big outbreak in one state, there'll be another state that's almost seemingly close to, you know, they're almost being nothing. Um, as things currently stand, I think they're monitoring the situation carefully. Speaking from where I am in DC, there aren't that many restrictions at the moment. And what we do have is fairly common sense, you know, some social distancing guidelines, uh, the need to, I guess, uh, wear masks when you go down to the store or you go to the gym. Um, and uh, th- there's, Plenty of free testing centers, so you can get tested to see if you have it or not. And whenever I've had to travel anywhere within the country, I've always gotten tested right after. Um, I'm really hopeful that things get better, but I think everyone's being cautious at the moment. And even if you fully open up your economy, there's there's still be people who are a bit scared about a third or fourth outbreak who will stay at home. Um, and I just can't wait to be able to travel again properly. You know, you have now wear a mask on the plane. In your experience talking to uh normies like normal people who aren't really politically engaged what has been uh the most successful way you've uh explained your principles or policies to them to shift their thinking has it been a soft-handed approach like kind of like catered to their personality or have you just been like no i think people should be free to live their own lives or what what's been the most successful tactic you've been using? I think for someone who is starting off from a base position of not agreeing with your principles, um, it, it helps to go issue specific and to speak to how you address or solve the problems that go to them. And you can often phrase that in a way that appeals to their principles. So for example, if I'm talking to a libertarian about education policy, I'll say something like every child deserves the opportunity to get the education that's right for them. And families should have the ability to choose whatever school option works best for them. And, uh, you know, they should be able to walk with their dollars to a school that will serve them best. And that way you're encouraging um, solutions that work for each individual. If I'm talking to someone who is a progressive, I'll say, you know, the rich, the wealthy have the ability to leave the school that they're in, to move to a different area or to... Uh, move to a private school. They already exercise a form of what we would call school choice. With the people who need help, 
are the people on low incomes, the people whose families don't have that option. And what we can do is we can allow them to, at the very least, be able to enroll in school that is a few streets down the road in a different school district, perhaps, and ensure that whatever money the government was going to spend on their education travels with them. So that way, the school that they go to has the resources to give them the best education or to, or to give them the same level of education that some kid, kid in the local area is able to get. Uh, and to give local schools themselves, who know best what works for their children and what the needs of their own communities are, to give them the power to spend the resources that we allocate to them in the best way possible, rather than through draconian mandates from an overarching government. So when you phrase it in ways like that, you know, someone who's progressive who might hate Milton Friedman, who might hate, you know, these guys whom we, we sort of like, uh, is able to understand how your ideas can actually fit into their world. Uh, and, you know, how it actually speaks to the interests of the people who deserve it the most. You know, as long as we can all agree on, you know, whose interests we want to support and who we want to help and that we all have good intentions in that regard. If we can do that much at least, we can bicker about what the exact solution is, but at least we're doing it in good faith. Uh, you've mentioned Milton Friedman twice, but I can't hear uh, Milton Friedman's name now without thinking of AOC saying, yeah, there's an economist called Milton Keynes, and he oh, actually... No. So I actually want to ask someone, is she... Because people post her videos unironically sometimes on Facebook. What What's the perception of her over there? Is she popular or is she like look um i'm gonna maybe upset a few people when i say this but she actually isn't that bad uh, i mean sure you know her she's obviously she identifies as a democratic socialist uh, there's a lot i don't agree with her on but she's someone who i, I will honestly say from whatever i've ever seen of her she's principled she believes in ideas and she genuinely thinks that the solution that she has are the best solutions forward and she's very good on, on some issues like the drug war, for example, she wants to end that. And she's strongly against corporate cronyism, which is something that we, you know, as libertarians strongly oppose as well. Um, and I've seen her very unfairly attacked sometimes by the media. And I think, look, she's a minor, I mean, she's a congresswoman. Uh, yeah, I think she's a, she's a congresswoman who, you know, She's only one person in her party, and she's part of the whole squad group, which is only four people. And I think a lot of this perception that she has all this influence in the party comes from the way outlets like Fox News, for example, have sort of covered her, uh, giving her a pretty big platform. And, you know, it's sort of a mutual, <laughs> in some ways, bizarrely mutually beneficial relationship. She gets the exposure. Fox News, you know, their, their viewers and their readers, I'm pretty sure, absolutely love any stories about her. And they share those little clips and say, oh my God, look at her, can you believe she said that? Uh, when, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's working out well for her. Her career seems to be doing well out of that sort of thing. Uh, I think, you know, I, I don't know how much control she actually has in the Democrats, but she's an interesting figure. I, I'd like to see what comes up, you know, what more comes from her in the future. And I do hope that she will read some more of that economist named Milton Friedman and, you know, really get down into what he, believes in. I think it'll be interesting to see that. Uh, his name is Milton Keynes. So just oh, letting you know. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show and we wish, wish you all the best over there and don't get shot. I'll try.